You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where I don't have a tagline to segue out of that. And uh, <laughs> then we talk about the Bible. So <laughs> last time we left, we were uh, in the story of Tamar and Amnon. I always get, I always feel like I'm going to mess Amnon's name up somehow, but I mean. It's a weird word. I don't, I was trying to think, do we have any English words that have that M-N combination i'm sure there are like amenities but uh you know uh, yeah anemone but but that's yeah, not quite and, right that's, not, that's yeah. still a different combination but it, it's still one that's kind of tricky to say yeah Eminity, we just don't have it yeah, often yeah there's yeah there's it's it's tricky so anyhow um but that's <laughs> the story we're on um if you want to give us a quick refresher of where we were and then we'll take it from there okay yeah so um to really put it into perspective, we're going to back all the way back up to chapter, I think it's nine. Yeah, chapter nine is where we're going to start. No, we aren't going to go that far. That was Mephibosheth, but that was David's uh, starting to show cracks in his armor, which lead to then the, the problems with Hanun, which then bring us into David and Bathsheba. And then this is the reaction within his family and the, the fulfillment of the um, prophecy that Nathan had delivered to David. And remember when, when Nathan had approached David, he had said, David had said, whoever did this deserves to pay fourfold. And so this is, we're in the middle of that repayment. This is the, the, the consequences of the evils he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. They're now unfolding in his own household. It began with the, the death of the son of David and Bathsheba, and now um, this sexual violence that he had perpetrated against Bathsheba is being replicated, and it happens against his daughter, and his son Amnon is the one who attacked his daughter Tamar, and nobody does anything to help Tamar except for Absalom, and Absalom is outraged about this, and he takes Tamar into his own house, and he cares for her. She does not return to David's house. She lives out her days as a desolate woman. And we, we see David not fulfilling his obligation as a father. He, he never even scolds Amnon, as far as we're told in the text, where there seems to be absolutely no reaction, which we talked last week, how that connected us back to the rape of Dina back in Genesis, when um, Simon and Levi were the brothers who stepped up on her behalf. And so at this point, all of that had happened. Two years had passed and Amnon, uh, Absalom was throwing a, a party. And at this party, uh, he had invited David. David had declined to go. And when David declines, then he turns around and asks David that Amnon should join them. And we kind of left last week. We were asking the question, what would have happened if David had been the one to go to the party? Because Absalom declares that he's going to, he wants his brother killed. He tells his servants to do this. And it really leads to some interesting speculations because 
when you move forward with Absalom's story, we we see how dysfunctional this relationship between Absalom and his father really is. So we're going to jump in uh, at verse 29, and we're going to pick up with the story from here, and we're going to talk about some of the ramifications, and uh, then we're going to get into the wise woman of Tekoa, who, that's a really fun story, that I honestly was not a story I was aware of until much, much later in life. It's not yeah. one that gets thought of a lot of in uh, scripture, probably because it's it's confusing. And so we're going to talk about all that. And I've this is the problem with recording is like I re, I study like way ahead, and then I get excited about that, and I don't want to come back and talk about what I've already left in my rearview mirror. So um, anyway, uh, but you know, teaser, you get everybody to come back, keep joining us. So verse twenty nine, yeah, you, you got to work with marketing. So verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, mounted his mules, and fled. So Amnon wants his servants to kill, um, I'm sorry, Absalom wants his servants to kill Amnon. They do it. Uh, This is very revealing about Absalom's character, that he could inspire that kind of loyalty from his men, because killing Amnon was dangerous. I mean, this is not just killing some, you know, random stranger. This was killing the prince, the heir apparent to David's throne. And so for his servants to be able to trust him enough to actually carry through with it, that says something about the kind of leader that Absalom was or how his mm-hmm. men perceived him. And, you know, Absalom is a a really interesting guy, but what, we're going to talk more about him. But I want to point out one thing before I lose it. They get on mules. Now, according to the Torah, they shouldn't have mules. As far as the people of Israel were not allowed to crossbreed these animals like this. So, oh, you know, uh, I, had, I hadn't considered that. That you're absolutely I, right. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so it's interesting that his David's sons are riding mules because, it, as we read through Scripture, we find out mules are kind of almost the preferred uh, mode of transportation for for royalty and nobility. You know, women get camels. We talked about that in Genesis. Nobility gets gets mules. So you have to ask, where do they come from? Now, if they're being Torah observant, then uh, they probably aren't breeding them themselves. They, they are probably spoils of war, and they've been captured from people they've conquered because mm-hmm. now that there is a status symbol. Look at what I'm writing. I only got this. Yeah. Right, yeah. You, you, can't, you can't breed them, but... You can buy them or capture them. It's like having an imported car. You know, that's kind of what it what it boils down to. Now, now the Torah forbids the breeding of mules because you don't mix things. The idea of holiness and and the separation of things is very big in the Torah. And also, you know, mules just shouldn't exist. Uh, They are they are creatures uh, created by Satan himself. If you've ever worked with a mule, you know I'm telling you the truth. My daughter <laughs> and my dad would have disagreed, but uh, if you want evidence of this, try to drown a mule. If a half inch of their ears are above the water, they you can't drown them. They are that indestructible. Uh, they're just they're, they're crazy critters. But anyway, I won't go off on my rant about mules too much. They are not She's my being favorite. Facetious. Don't actually try to drown <laughs> any animal because we said so. Don't. Well, and 
you know, let's face it. If you if you actually try to drown a mule, you're probably going to hurt yourself more than anything you're going to do to the mule. It's just well, that simple. <laughs> well, and also, I'm going to assume you've got plenty of extra time and or resources, so you should just volunteer some of that our way. I'm I'm just going to put that out there. So. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, because uh, they're actually uh, highly prized. Uh, my daughter wants to get into breeding them, and I don't understand. So, but verse, verse 30, uh, while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, not one is left. Okay, so again, we have this time in the Bible where all doesn't mean all, because obviously even the person speaking knows that one of the king's sons is still alive, i.e. Absalom. Uh, so, you know, we have to be careful with that word. And um, you, you kind of have to wonder what's going on in David's heart and mind at this point. Because to be a king and not just a judge, you had to have the son to carry on that dynasty. And so if all the king's sons are dead and the only surviving son is a murderer, who's going to sit on the throne? And you know, David is probably grappling with this. He seems to have a very quick mind. He probably sees all the ramifications, even in the middle of his grief. And he, he understands this poses not just the loss of his children, which is tragic. He understands this could also mean the loss of his throne. So verse 31, then David arose, tore his garments and lay on the earth and all the servants with him for their garments. So this is really a huge contrast to what we saw in chapter um, chapter 13, where when David's son uh, from Bathsheba dies, he doesn't grieve when the child dies. He, he grieves while the child is still alive. And then once the child dies, then he arose and he clothed himself and anointed himself and he ate. And so we have this, this kind of reversal. And at first, it, it's kind of it's kind of puzzling that there would be just this almost immediate uh, shift in how David's looking at things. But I think part of it goes back to where we were talking about the, the idea that an infant or a child who dies returns to God. When you have adult children, you know, that's dicey. Who knows about adult children? I mean, we, I think we as parents all hope the best and, and we desire that this would be our children's faith, that should they die, that they would return to God, even as adults. But David knew who his children were. I mean, he knew who Amnon was, and Amnon was among all of those sons. Mm -hmm. And Amnon's not a, an admirable uh, person at all. And Deuteronomy, um, okay, so let me back up, because there's so much in this story. Now, David doesn't realize at this point that Absalom has actually shown, excuse me, he's shown a great deal of restraint because he did not kill all the sons. We know that he just killed his brother Amnon. Right. And which makes the text a little bit confusing. And what I think is really interesting, because I do remember we... There, I did have a, a Sunday school class that covered this story once, which was, I think that was one of the things I do appreciate. We did actually tackle some of the <laughs> weirder stories, or tried to, uh, <laughs> growing up in, in the church we were at. Um, but I don't, I don't, I, the details are still fuzzy, and I, I didn't get a chance to read things. I'm in summer mode at work, so I'm like, 
doing a whole lot of extra work, so I'm exhausted when I get in. But um, yeah, so. Anyway, you've reached that point in your life. You've reached that point in your life where you sit down and you fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, that, that's basically kind of what happens, especially, I mean, you know, I work 10 hour days, so, and that's on the regular. But, right. So, anyway, what? go on well, with what you're saying. Okay, so Am- Absalom has killed Amnon. And like I said, David doesn't realize this because David hasn't figured out what the what the plot is. He doesn't get why Absalom would turn on his brothers this way. You know, there, there's probably some inkling because of this day and age, killing your brother if they were threats to you ascending to the throne. Not out of character, not out of keeping with the climate of the culture. But he doesn't understand that Absalom is absolutely doing what David had failed to do. And that was David had not stepped up to take care of Tamar. He had not dealt with Amnon. He had not even spoken against him. This is a huge point. And we're going to see why it's such a huge point, especially when we get into the story of the woman, the wise woman of Tekoa. Yeah. Now, question is, is this just saying that because it you know it does read funny because it does say it's struck down all the the news reached David that uh, Absalom struck down all the king's sons, and mm-hmm. now is this just saying that the news got to David and it was incorrect? Is it, it, that's exactly it, what's going okay. on? And then yeah, because uh, yeah, stuff gets blown out of proportion all the time, and we just seriously watch the news today. <laughs> exactly. This this is a good point where we go back and we can say. People are people. The, the, the basic modes of operation of humanity really haven't changed that much since the Bible times. And, and that's why we need to be very careful not to make these people more holy than what they are. So, um, you know, David is grieving here, and you, you have to wonder why why so much grief not just in in the contrast with the unborn son but is it is he really grieving all of his sons or is he grieving just Amnon specifically because Amnon is the one to carry on his name we aren't really told but we do have a little bit of a clue when we get to the end of the chapter the verse 32 but Jonadab the son of Shimea David's brother said, let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not the lord, the king, my lord, the king, take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So Jonadab, remember he was at the beginning of the story. He's the guy who set everything in motion. He realized that Amnon was looking kind of peaked and looked a little down in the mouth. And he suggested this, this plot to get Tamar into Amnon's uh, house or his chambers. And he's kind of disappeared from the story for a little bit, but he's back now. And this raises so many questions. Like, how does he know what happened? despite mm-hmm. the fact he obviously wasn't there. I right. mean, the messengers ha- have come back with the totally wrong news, and he's saying, oh, no, 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 they- they've-, they've got it wrong. Now, we do know he's a wise man, so maybe he put two and two together and he realized what was going on. Um, so 
did he know, you know, did he just deduce it and did he suspect or did he hear whisperings about Absalom's plot? If he knew about it, why didn't he say anything? Is this why he's not with his buddy Amnon at the party and he stayed behind? Did I mean, or did he put the whole thing together as a plot to get rid of Amnon because he knew what kind of person Amnon was? Okay, I didn't even think about that. I, I did consider possibly, you know, maybe he realized that Amnon wasn't going to be able to survive to make it to be king, so he switched allegiances to Absalom at some point. I there there's so much going on. Why is he talking to David? Why is David's son's advisor or royal counselor in David's court talking to the king this way and saying, you know, basically going, it's not a big deal. Amnon's well, dead, sure, but you got other sons. Yeah, but I mean, it's also his nephew, so it wouldn't be unheard of that he would be there. Yeah, but at the same time, that means everybody at the party is his cousin. So why isn't he partying with the cousin? I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, he he did say from the time that uh, he violated his sister Tamar that, you know, basically Absalom is determined to seal his fate. So he may have, you know, he may have been like, yeah, I'm going to set this one out. <laughs> or did Absalom know what part he played in it and he was scared to go to the party? I, I you know, th there's so many behind the scenes details that we, we aren't told that this is where if a woman had written this, we would have included all those details. But again, you wouldn't be able to carry the Bible around as easily. Um, but. Jonadab's character is really the point and purpose isn't really to to talk about him it's to introduce a concept it's to introduce a a character uh, a kind of a trope within the book of Samuel and to show us what the writer of Samuel thinks about this thing called uh, these people called wise men uh who are they? What are they worth? What's their value and contribution to the society? Because we have to remember that in, in, in the Hebrew culture, wisdom has absolutely nothing to do with morals and ethics. It, it just, it, it's not there. That's not part of the equation. That's the reason why we have Proverbs that actually seem to violate biblical standards for behaviors and, and ethical um, conduct. Because mm -hmm. wisdom is about what gets things done. How does it work? And so in the English, we often miss that Jonadab is a wise man because the translators have said, okay, but this is the kind of wisdom that's used in manipulation and deception, kind of this underhanded way. So we're going to call it crafty. We're going to give it that negative connotation, even with the synonym we pick, because that's going to allow people to see his character by using this word. It's not wrong. It's absolutely not wrong. But what it does is it, it takes the, um, it, the emphasis and the focus away from what the writer is trying to, to demonstrate. Jonadab is not a, an ethical or moral person. He's just a guy who manages to, to get it done. And you got to remember grace and compassion and mercy and all those attributes that are celebrated within the Bible are not something that a wise man necessarily values. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, you know, if, if it gets the job done, then by all means, be gracious, be merciful, be compassionate. If it doesn't get the job done, then it's okay to neglect those. Now, the reason why we need this concept introduced is because, remember, the writer of the, our books, First and Second Samuel, also wrote First and Second Kings. Mm-hmm. Who does, you know, First Kings focus on? Solomon. Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we're being set up here. It, it, this is exactly it. Wisdom in Samuel, by, when presented by the writer of Samuel, is mercenary. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's the point. And so Jonadab's going to have one more little, little line after this, but then he disappears from the story. We know nothing more about him. He sets things in motion. He causes this major tragedy in David's house. When it happens... Instead of responding with compassion and empathy and weeping with everyone, he look, you got more kids. It's okay. It's it's fine. No big deal. You know, don't don't be too uh upset. So verse 34. But Absalom fled, and the young men who kept watch lifted up his eye the young man who lifted up his eye who kept watch <laughs> lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. Many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Now, it, it, there's all kinds of symbolism that's been speculated about this. Uh, what does this mean that, you know, he, they were coming behind him? Okay, they weren't coming from the direction he expected. He expected everybody to be coming down from Baal Hazor from the party that Absalom had been throwing where they were supposed to meet. And instead, everybody went, they, they just scattered. Because they were scared of what Absalom would do. And they didn't want to stick around to, to find out what Absalom was going to do. Was he just going to kill Amnon? Were all of them dead? I mean, we've already seen this in, in Judges where Abimelech, remember Gideon's son, what does he do when he wants to be king? He kills the 70 brothers, all of them except for uh, one who manages to get away. And so... The idea that, that they were in real danger would have been something they would have been aware of. So, so they take evasive measures is basically what it is. You know, I don't think necessarily there's this huge symbolism of uh, about coming down beside the mountain or, or coming from behind. It, it's just they were scared sure. <laughs> and they got out. They got out of the way. So. Um, I also, we we find out that, um, that my notes are, yeah, they're in order. Sorry. Uh, Verse 34. So we're going to continue with that. (laughs) But Absalom fled and the young men kept, oh, Absalom fled. Sorry. That, that was the point. Um, There's some question about why Absalom fled. (laughs) Well, because because he's smart enough to get out of town. I mean, you just murdered your brother. I mean, yeah, <laughs> completely bypassed the the rule of law, any kind of judgment uh, that may have been going on. Yeah, that did, you would need to find he? a place to hide out. Well, but the question, did he violate the rule of law? That's the real question. And, we're, and that really comes into play when we get into that wise woman of Koa story. Now, it could be that, you know, Amnon was just... The favorite that being the heir apparent being the one that was supposed to sit on the throne next the oldest child david 
may have um, had, you know, a little more attachment to Amnon than he did to Absalom. Maybe Absalom realized that in killing daddy's favorite, there's a problem. The thing is, Absalom really wasn't doing anything wrong. And we're going to get into that. But again, I'm going to wait until the wise woman of Tekoa. We're going to talk about why Absalom may have absolutely been in the right in doing this and why that would cause so much trouble for David for Absalom to do the right thing. And I also kind of wonder, too, if Absalom is beginning to ask the questions that is that are going to lead him to his um, to what he's going to do next, because there is a rebellion. And if you've read, you know, look ahead and even the, the headings of the next few chapters, you're going to find out Absalom absolutely undermines his dad. He, he um, does some horrible things, but that's the kind of the point uh, of the story is we're starting to see this break between Absalom and David, this father son relationship really it, it's dysfunctional and it's dysfunctional in a huge, huge way. And so um, verse 35, and Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said so, it has come about. So, see, I told you. I mean, th this guy has, <laughs> he is just, I can't think of a polite way to, to um, describe him. I mean, he's arrogant. I mean, who talks to the king this way? See, I told you they weren't all dead. I mean, you don't want to talk to the king this way. You don't even talk to a neighbor or a friend this way because it's rude. I mean, it's lacking in compassion. But again, this is what we should expect from the wise man. And after this, he, he disappears. We never hear from him again. Right. Would you mind shooing the fly away from your mic? I, I, I am trying. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but I, I keep hearing it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I don't know what we're going to do about those because he was not here until we started recording. So. That's funny. Uh, yeah, he showed up. Well, at least it's not Wasp, so we're just going to be happy about that. So, Fair enough. <laughs> verse 36. As soon as he finished speaking, behold, the, key, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept, and the king also and his servants wept very bitterly. So, um, it's interesting to me, who are they grieving here? Are they grieving the loss of the brother and the son and the crown prince, or are they, they grieving the rapist? And we've got to remember, Amnon's not some helpless victim here. He's not some guy that, oh, wow, he was such a good man. Why, why, you know, this shouldn't have happened to him. It absolutely should have happened to him. Only Absalom seems to understand Amnon deserves to be punished. Because, you know, where were the brothers when, when Tamar was raped? Where was everybody else? Why, why weren't they, they, they crying out for justice at that point? I mean, they were silent. Why are they upset about Amnon's death more than they were about her? I mean, was this just a cultural thing? What, that, you know, it was what the fate of a woman wasn't as important as the fate of a man? But what I think is interesting is this connects us back, actually, to the story of Jephthah's, uh, Jephthah's daughter. Kabegas, when she was offered up as a sacrifice, or promised to be a sacrifice, no one cried out for her. Mm -hmm. But when you fast forward to Jonathan's story and Saul's rash vow, 
the people redeem Jonathan. Right. Okay, I can see that. One thing I, I want to put out here, this I've been watching Blacklist, and so the I'm kind of seeing... Uh, it's a good show. Uh, jo- <laughs> I'm kind of thinking of Jonadab as kind of that sociopath, uh, like very practical, you know, sees sees crime as a means to an end type of thing as opposed to anything that needs to be abhorred. And that's... Oh. So, kind of seeing Is it James Spader? Who, the actor yeah, plays, yeah. Ray- Raymond Red. Reddington. Yes. <laughs> so, which since you brought it up, I tell people, if you want to understand who our dad was, he's a combination of Raymond Red Reddington and Red Foreman from the 70s show. So, you know, <laughs> kind of somewhere between those two extremes is kind of a summation of our father. But, um, anyway, I, I guess it amuses me, okay? Because I can see Dad in both those characters. Verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, and the son of um, Amahud, okay, I love those names, Amahud came king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. Now, Telemai, son of Amahud, is Absalom's grandfather on his mother's side. Uh, we find that in 2 Samuel 3.3. We find it in 2 Chronicles 3.2. There's a Telemai who shows up in Judges in the book of Joshua. And we're told that he's the son of Anak. And the, son of An- the sons of Anak are giants. They're part of the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And this, this is not the same person. The timeline doesn't work. Too much time has passed. But... The, of course, the rabbis pick up on this and they say, ah, oh, Absalom was a rebellious son because David had married the daughter of one of these Nephilim. So she's part Nephilim and they were part of the, the lineage of the sons of God who had rebelled against God. So, of course, Absalom was a, a rebellious son. And so they actually try to make Absalom's rebellious nature uh, a product of the, these illicit affairs between humanity and the, the spiritual world. So. Uh, it's really kind of interesting that this happens and they they fill in the blanks there. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Talamai, which is why we need the blanks filled in. Um, we don't have a lot of information about even his daughter or why David married her. We do know that they were in Canaan before the Israelites, and we know that they had fortified cities. Uh, Bethsaida was one of their capital cities of, at one point. but. Absalom's flight to his grandfather in Gesher really mirrors David's flight back to Moab when he was running from Saul because the Moabites were David's grandparents too. Mm-hmm. So we, we start to see these little hints that Absalom is very much David's uh, son, uh, just, as, just like Amnon was David's son. So we see how David's personality, his traits, his history are mirrored in his own children's lives. Now, the phrase David mourned for a son day after day, the text is really unclear. We don't know which son is David mourning for at this point, because, I mean, obviously Amnon's dead, but Absalom's in exile, and in the Hebrew culture, being in exile is far worse than, than, than dying. You, you don't want to be cut off from your people. Right. And, you know, David knew what it was like to be in exile. And you can remember when that last standoff he had with Saul, where he had snuck into Saul's camp and he had taken the spear and 
Saul had driven him into the land of uh, the Philistines. And David, you know, was talking about how awful it was not to be in Israel and he was being forced to worship other gods. So on one hand, David could be saying, I'm grieving the son who's dead, but that's kind of not in keeping with David's character. We saw that in chapter 13. But on the other hand, we could see how he would be grieving the son who was, who was re, you know, reenacting the, the most horrible and painful times of David's own life. So kind of an interesting parallel. I, I, there's not a whole lot said about Absalom's time in Gesher, so we don't know if there are any more similarities, but I think you're supposed to be thinking about how both of these sons, Amnon and his rape of, his, of Tamar, and David's rape of Bathsheba, you know, kind of fit together. But then there's this time where, where David was following God and he was being blessed by God. And it was that time on the run. And here's Absalom recreating that part of, of David's life. So in verse 38, uh, again, we're told that he's in Gesher, where, where Absalom is, and that he remains there for three years. So, you know, there's a, there's a cooling down period going on here within the kingdom. And then verse 39, it says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, this verse is not as straightforward as it looks in the English. Uh, there's two very different readings of the verse. Um, what I read was the ESV. That's typically what we use or have been using because a lot of people are very familiar with it. But Robert Alter takes an alternate reading and it says David's urge to sally forth against Absalom was spent for he was consoled over Amnon who was dead. Now, the reason we have two different translations here is because we have a defective text. Um, what we have in the, the oldest manuscripts, what we have in uh, various translations, they don't always match up. They, they aren't uh, complete. And when we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, this part of the text is incomplete. So we can't even go in and uh, reconstruct what was lost over the years. If you want to get real technical, for those who, who kind of get into the nitty-gritty uh, grammatical side of it, we have feminine um, verbs, but we don't have any feminine nouns. And so we know something's missing because you have to put you know, feminine verbs with feminine nouns, masculine with, with masculine uh, verbs. So, I mean, it, it, they fit together. Now, the Dead Sea does seem to indicate that there might have been, and I haven't seen the, the text, and I, I'm counting on people who write the books I consult to tell me the truth, that the word missing might be ruach. Now, ruach is typically translated spirit, um, wind, but it also can mean impulse, urge, desire. It, 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 remember, Hebrew encompasses many meanings within one word. So Alter defends his translation as being supported by the events that follow, that David's urge, David's desire to go against, not to, but against. And in Hebrew, that word, it's a Lamed preposition. It, it's, um, it can have both those meanings, to go to or to go against. And then Zamora actually goes through and he, he points out that Back in verse 36, we had the um, we have the same word for spent that as finished uh, as mm -hmm. David's desire to go out against was 
was over. So, you know, David, David's anger seems to kind of subside at this point. And so we've got Alter and Zamora, two very highly celebrated um, scholars in, in this literature who take a, a reading that's different than what you're going to find in most English translations. And yeah, well, it, and the JPS is kind of just very plain. It says, and David was pining away for Absalom, for the king had gotten over Amnon's death. Just, yeah. Just very practical. <laughs> right. And, and that, that pining aspect is, is what we typically see reflected in the English translations and this idea of longing who he desired to, to bring Amnon back. But when you have unclear um, grammar, unclear, um, an unclear verse in just the simple meaning of the words, that's where you have to look at the larger context. And I do believe what we see in the larger context, and, and I think it'll become very clear quickly, is David doesn't do anything to restore his relationship to Absalom. He actually, at one point, when, when Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, he he keeps him at a distance. He, he actually says, Absalom's not supposed to see my face. I don't even want him in my presence. That doesn't sound like somebody who's longing after their son. That sounds like somebody who's fine, bring him back. Just don't bring him around me. And so I think in the larger context, the idea that, that David has decided, I'm not going to kill him. I, I don't want to, to actively seek revenge. I don't want to bless him, but I'm not going to go out of my way to to uh, make my anger known anymore it is far more likely given the events that follow. So that ends chapter 13 and we begin to move into chapter 14. And um, Absalom's really going to remain center, ch center stage until chapter 18. Now, I'm just going to confess right up front. I've always liked Absalom as a character. Um, you know, I, I realize that's going to be very controversial when we get to some of the, the future events. But, you know, people seem to have no problem liking David, despite the fact that what he does is um, very controversial. Absalom's very much a product of his culture. He's very much a product of his family. Um, you know, everything that he does is either a reaction against something that's happened within his family or a response to something that's happening within his family. And he is David's son. Everything he does is a reflection of that. And it really emphasizes how David is the key influencer in Absalom's life. And it reminds us that David is the instigator of all of this. This didn't begin with Amnon and Absalom. This began with their father and his sin. And just like David, Absalom never does anything halfway. Now, he's often doing things in a more well thought out, a more planned and deliberate fashion than David, because, you know, David reacts with these kind of emotional outbursts. You know, the guy comes and says, hey, I, I killed King Saul because mm -hmm. he was dying. I'm going to kill him. And so David kills him. Uh, the, the guys come and say, hey, we killed Ishbosheth. David kills them. I, there, there's no forethought in a lot of David's actions. Absalom, I mean, he waited two years before he responds to, to Amnon. Mm -hmm. he, he's willing to, to plot things out. And in some ways, this makes him far more dangerous and frightening than David ever would be. 
And this is also why I think he would have been the ideal heir to the throne. I mean, he's fiercely devoted to the most vulnerable members of his family. And, you know, you would think that as a king, the father of a nation, that he would carry that over to his subjects. Um, he's smart. I mean, this guy is savvy. When we get to hearing about some of his plots, we're going to see how smart he is. He's controlled. The fact that he waited two years to strike against Amnon, David never could have done that. I mean, he, he is somebody, unless God has specifically told him to wait, David is on it in a heartbeat. Amnon is savage. He's savage in a savage age. He, he meets his culture for what it is, and he responds in according uh, to, to their expectations. He's confident. He knows his own mind. You know, he's undeniably flawed. I'm not saying that the guy's perfect or he doesn't have his problems, but the writer of Samuel still manages to make him a very empathetic character, even in the middle of all the chaos. Mm. And our aversion to Absalom, I think, is more of a product of our age than it is a product of his age. Um, you know, the violence, even the sexual violence, the vanity, we, we recoil because we've been taught this is wrong. Where in his day and time, it would have been completely acceptable. So um, we're going to pick up in verse one. It says, now Joab, son of Zariah, Zariah, sorry, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So we still have that same translation problem. Is David pining for his son? Is he longing for him? Or does he want to, to seek revenge? And, you know, I think we need to keep reading before we make that call. Verse two. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mother, uh, pr pretend to be a mourner, sorry, and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. So Joab has recruited this woman from Tekoa. And um, what's interesting about this is the fact that Joab is smart enough to play on David's weakness. David's weakness is women. And so instead of confronting David directly, he actually goes and gets a woman who can convey the message so David can hear it. And as I was reading through this, I was really shocked that not a single commentator that I read actually connected these events in chapter 14 right back to chapter 13. Because the thing is, if you look at this, this is a parallel account. It's connected so deeply and so graphically that I don't understand why. Well, I do understand why people miss it, but we're going to talk about why they miss it. But first, let me let me set the obvious connection. So, um, First, the, the two people that we have juxtaposed right off the bat are Jonadab and the wise woman of Tekoa. Now, the reason why they're juxtaposed is because in Hebrew, not the English, but in the Hebrew, Jonadab is a wise man. She's a wise woman. So right off, we know that there's going to be a reversal. There's going to be the contrast because we have a wise man and a wise woman. Now, Jonadab is the son of Shimea, David's brother. That's very clearly pointed out at least twice in the previous chapter. Joab is reintroduced 
despite the fact we know him, I and mean, we've, we've had him in the sto- several stories before this, but he's reintroduced, and the writer specifically includes the, the point, he's the son of Zuria. Zuria is David's sister. So again, that opposite of male and female. Mm-hmm. Jonadab tells Amnon to pretend to be ill. Joab tells the woman of Tekoa to pretend to be a mourner. And so we we see the connection that allows us to see the distinctions. Well, we see it's the reversal. You have in one you have mm-hmm. the the wise person giving advice and in this one you have the person telling the wise person what to do. Yes. Well, and, and that's the thing. Jo, Joab is actually in some ways the the woman who's supposed to be the wise woman becomes the mouthpiece for Joab's own wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so it, we also have uh, Jonadab tells Amnon what to say to the king when the king comes to him. Joab tells the woman what to say when the king when she goes to the king. Now, um, Amnon's son, obviously, another part of that reversal is there's an intimate relationship with David. Amnon's known to David, where the woman's a complete stranger. And then within the story, we have this, this blurring of lines with multiple characters, where Jonadab um, and the woman are both wise. But where she is also the pretender, like Amnon was the pretender, and mm-hmm. Tamar, of course, the two being women, and we're going to talk about the significance of that. Um, I think one of the reasons why it gets overlooked, why this connection gets overlooked, is because this also connects back so well with Nathan confronting David, because the the connection really is that moment where the two of them, the woman and Nathan, they go to David, they tell a story, David pronounces his judgment, and in doing so, he convicts himself. And that's what happens both times. So, I mean, it, it's obvious. Yeah, sure, this picks up on Nathan and David. We, we see it so clearly, so plain, you know. But we should know by now the writer of Samuel is rarely content just to draw on one story in the past. You know, we talked about with the actual rape sequence within uh, Tamar and Amnon, there are at least 10 different stories that the writer's pulling from. He at least alludes to them in some form or fashion. And so um, that, that connection back to two chapters, two previous chapters, shouldn't surprise us at all. The writer's smart enough to do this. We also have that connection to, to Tamar kind of driven home because we have this emphasis on clothes. Remember, Tamar's status is denoted by her clothes, just like this woman's status is going to be denoted by her clothes. The difference is this woman has been in the process of grieving, and so the, her clothes show that she's grieving. Tamar begins to grieve, and her clothes are destroyed to reflect that. And the um, city where, where this woman is from, it, it, Tekoa, Opens some interesting doors. Uh, Zamora doesn't think that it's necessarily a city known for its wisdom. However, the rabbis actually, they, they cite it as being a center of wisdom. Alter notes that Tekoa is the birthplace of the prophet Amos. And wisdom is definitely 100% one of the attributes of, of a prophet. And so... Um, we don't know if this woman was being perceived as a prophet or having some kind of prophetic role. She's not recorded as such. 
But typically when you have multiple connections like that, traditionally that role will be kind of inferred or a role will be inferred if you have several points of comparison, even if it's not specifically uh, spelled out. And we got to remember that Abigail, who's celebrated as a wise woman, is also celebrated as a prophet. But this is what causes part of the problem within the story. When Nathan went to David, he was going as a prophet. He was delivering a message from God. This woman, we don't really know, is, is she being prophetic? Or is she just being a mouthpiece for Joab? And the writer doesn't seem to want to clarify that. He wants you to have that tension. How do you view what she's saying? How do you view her role in all of this? Because is she the female counterpart to, to Nathan? Or is Joab overstepping his bounds and trying to act like God and correcting the king? Uh, so all of these wonderful little points that, that kind of play into the story and, and just add that richness that we've come to expect in Samuel. Now, verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him and said, Save me, O king. So straight away, we, the juxtaposition against Jonadab, who's with the speeches to David, that's ah, no big deal. Your kids are dead. It's going to be okay. See, I told you so. She's got a completely different attitude towards David than Jonadab had towards David. Now, her words here, the king. In this entire chapter, never once is David referred to as David. He is the king. And if I counted correctly, 38 times in this chapter, he's called the king, or he's called my lord. Now, in chapter 13, everybody else is specifically identified by their relationship to David. That's mm -hmm. what you need to know about them. I mean, the first verses were... Um, Absalom, David's son. And so I mean, we, we begin with that. Amnon, David's son. Jo Joab is even identified, or sorry, Jonadab is uh, identified by his relationship to David. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we aren't going to hear anything about David as, you know, the name, his, his proper name until chapter 15, verse 12. And even then, it's when we're talking about one of his counselors and he doesn't become David the man again until he begins interacting with the individuals in his royal court when he's dealing with this woman and even when he's dealing with Absalom he's the king which the writer is I mean we, we've been through this entire book we know he's intentional he's telling us something what's he telling us he's telling us that there is this separation that's going on this distance that's growing between him and his children where he instead of David the father that, that that those words are missing. Mm -hmm. He's the king, and so there's not that intimate relationship, and the family is suffering uh, for it. And that's the reason why the writer of Samuel is so so brilliant. And what makes this even more fun is when you you recognize this contrast, and when you see that separation and that and that how the dysfunctional relationship of the father and the king and you you contrast david the messiah of first samuel or you know first and second samuel 
with Jesus, the Messiah of the New Testament, and now you begin to see how, de- how Jesus' love is superior to the most celebrated king in Israel's history. And then whenever you compare the David of Chronicles to the David of Samuel, you get this, this really intense and complex image of a man who, with these stunning highs that we still celebrate and we still we honor him for. But then you also see these abject failures and you begin to see that all of our, uh, our hope isn't in a man, even a great political leader. It is in the person of Christ. And you need to see that because we all need Jesus. And you know, the, the writer is really revealing a truth that all of us know and all of us can identify with. Parents hurt kids. They do stupid things. They make awful mistakes with their children. Our parents made their mistakes. I've made my mistakes. You're going to make some doozies because your kids aren't old enough to make major ones just yet. But (laughs) wait till they're teenagers. Don't put put that on me. (laughs) Don't know. I mean, I know I'll make mistakes, but don't say I'll make big ones. Well, you you can't make big ones until they're teenagers. And and then everything before that doesn't count. No. (laughs) But, you know, children rebel. They hurt their parents. This happens. We all know this story. And we've all been one of the characters in the story. We were either the rebellious child or the parent who's been rebelled against or the child who was just hurt by their, ki- by their parents. And it's so common of a theme that throughout all of history, within all of myth- mythology, you're going to find this repeated over and over again. Uranus is killed by Kronos. Kronos is killed by Zeus. And, uh, you know, that's just Greek mythology. And then you can get into the Babylonian mythology where Asper is killed by Ea. Then, you know, we've got Mesopotamia. In the Hindu mythology, it's kind of interesting because typically the father kills the son instead of the son killing the father. And, you know, and we aren't even going to talk about Star Wars, which is today's mythology and all the, the uh, patricide that happens in, in those <laughs> movies. But, this is, this is common, and to have this element of this corrupted gods and the broken humanity as part of David's story, which, I mean, the, the story of the Bible is the story of that broken relationship between the father and the children, where they're talking Father God, the creator, and his created children, or we're talking angels. Go ahead. The Elohim. Did, you say, did you say patricide in Star Wars? Yes. Okay. Well, there's on, there's only one really, because uh, Luke doesn't kill Darth Vader. Who kills Han Solo? Yeah, you said all <laughs> the patricide. That's one. Well, instance. so well, you I just, know, I don't want to get letters on this. So, <laughs> okay. Um, but Luke should have killed him anyway. Okay. We're... No, the idea is that that Anakin. <laughs> Killed the emperor to stop him from killing Luke. You, you got to rewatch those anyway. Okay. So, well, now we got that it, out of the way. Let's, it was attempted, but anyway, and thwarted. And so, we'll, okay, we'll talk about Star Wars later. Um, but, <laughs> but the, the Please point, don't send letters. The, the point, the point of. All of this. I mean, we hadn't even gone into the Iliad, uh, which we could. Um, the point of all of this is 
this is what makes Jesus so unexpected. This is what makes Jesus so much superior to, to David and every other king, every other mythology out there. And you've got to remember those kings and those mythological stories all fit together because the kings were the embodiment and representative or descendants of the gods, depending on when we're talking and which culture we're talking about. And so if David, the, the one who's been adopted as the son of God, the one who's supposed to be God's representative, has this broken relationship within his own household, what hope does humanity have? Well, the only hope we have is Jesus. And it's always been that way. So um, this is why we have to, to honor the, the, the story of Absalom, because it's, it's a revelation of why God's love for us is superior to even David's love for his own son, because ultimately David can't restore his son. And it's David's inability to forgive and restore his son that causes Israel to be thrown into civil war. So anyway, I, it, it, I get excited about this because when you start to see those themes and how God has used the failures of even his most loved and favorite people within his own scripture, how they demonstrate his superiority in just irrefutable ways. And these are the people God loves. And the people we've put on pedestals who are so flawed. And so it gives us hope because we're flawed. So God can, but God can still love us. But then that, that redeeming aspect of, of God's ability to, to go beyond that. So uh, anyway, verse five, and then the king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now, at first, this seems like it's unnecessarily repetitive and redundant. Um, but we know the writer of Samuel, he's too smart for that. He's not going to give us pointless information. He's only going to give us what we need. And we need to know she's a widow. Her husband is dead. This is going to be the biggest point within the story. She has no one to protect her. She has no one to speak on her behalf. She has no one to go to. So she has to appeal directly to the king. And if with the king isn't going to move on her behalf, then she's desolate. I, and so we have this, again, a stark contrast because Amnon's not alone. Amnon has so many resources at his disposal. And yet when he makes his appeal to the king for what only the king can give him, it's for a totally different purpose. And the nature of the request are going to be contrasted because Amnon, of course, asked so that he could destroy, and she's asking so that she can continue to, to have life. So verse mm -hmm. six, <clears throat> and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in a field, and there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. So obviously, we have a passing connection back to Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. We got two brothers in a field, one kills the other. And there's some debate on whether this is a Masal, like Nathan told, whether it is that story that's going to prove a point, or if she's actually relating real events and Joab just happened to find somebody who suited purposes. We don't know. Um, I kind of get the feeling that it, she just made it up to, to suit her needs. Uh, the argument against is we don't have that formulaic introduction. Remember when Nathan went before David, he says, there was a certain man and there was kind of this, this little bit of shock 
with the rabbis and other commentators that David didn't pick up on the fact that Nathan's telling him a story, that it didn't actually happen. And now the arguments to say this is a story of Masal is that she is seeming to lift from Genesis 4. And we have already had evidence that Genesis was already was available to people at this time and pretty much in the form that we have it today. So mm-hmm. she would have she would have known that. Um, the key the key phrase in this verse, there was no one to separate them. So not only is she alone, you know, I'm a widow, my husband's died, there was no one to separate them. And so if the woman is is telling a true story, it's because her, her husband's dead. And now we know that this is a setup to talk about Absalom. And when you go back and review the story, once you get that piece of information, what she's really saying is, where were you when your sons were quarreling? Are you dead? Aren't you alive? What do you, you know, is this, you, what value do you have as a father if you aren't going to be there to be between them and to put an end to it? And so there's this little accusation underneath her words that wouldn't become obvious until the end of the conversation. And so this is the reason why she's celebrated as the wise woman of Tekoa. So, verse 7a, and now the whole clan has risen against your servant and said, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So she pulls back. She makes the little jab. She pulls back and she begins to present the story that the problem that she has now, it's not that just one son is dead. It's that everyone's rising up and they're demanding that she hand over her son. Because why? In Judaism, if you kill someone, the penalty is death. There is no ransom. Now, we're going to talk next week about why this gets to be, you know, it's, it's a sticky subject because, I mean, obviously we have David who is a murderer and we have Joab who is a murderer and they're seeming to get along just fine without any kind of, um, repercussions for their actions and so it seems like there is starting to be a rule of law one for the king and nobility and one for the common people and of course if we remember back to when Saul was appointed king this is what Samuel said would happen and he warned that it should not be allowed to happen and the king should not be above the law so with this woman talking to David this way, we're being reminded that Samuel's war- words are true, number one, and number two, that the king that we're dealing with is not somebody that necessarily honors the law in the way he should, even though he's expected to enforce the law on behalf of his subjects. So that's probably a good spot to leave a leave a semicolon for, uh, yep. because we're we're going to get into some more complex matters here in, a, in the second half of this verse and talk about okay. some of the implications of what she has to say. All right. Yeah. Well, we will uh, be looking forward to hearing the rest of this conversation and and what the implications are. I. I'm pretty sure when we went through this in Sunday school years ago, I think this part was either left out or I just don't remember it. So um, 
very curious it, to see how things it, turn up. It's not talked about in depth in a lot of stuff. This is where all the commentaries, you know, in the first book of Samuel, the commentaries are like this thick. And right. the second book, they're like this thick. And so um, it's not really picked apart the same way that the beginning of the book was, which I don't understand because there's still just as much depth here in Second Samuel as we had in First Samuel. Right. Right. Well, well, I'm enjoying it, and I'm hoping everyone out there is as well. And you're welcome to join us, be part of the conversation over at uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreeksc.com is the website. Get your contact information, show notes, and other shows that are put together by people we really like and enjoy. So run <laughs> over there and check those out, and, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.